Hey everybody and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. On the podcast this week, stories include a roundup of the April Patch Tuesday news, including some early information on problems related to said patches. Microsoft Laps is now in guest within the Windows operating systems, both desktop and server operating systems. And Microsoft officially launches Windows 365 Frontline. For that and more, keep listening to this episode, which is made possible by my awesome sponsors, and that includes Networks Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage the lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And of course, also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp. Happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. So a quick roundup of this month's Patch Tuesday news, uh, at least the Windows Update-related segment. So Microsoft's April 2023 Patch Tuesday brought fixes for... 97 flaws, which, you know, that's a pretty sizable amount if you compare it with previous months. And that includes patches for 20 elevation or privilege vulnerabilities, 8 security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 45 remote code execution vulnerabilities, 10 information disclosure vulnerabilities, 9 denial of service vulnerabilities, and 6 spoofing vulnerabilities. So just kind of looking at that, I mean, 45 remote code execution vulnerabilities is particularly troubling 20 elevation of privilege vulnerabilities is also very troubling and that's you know just within the greater context that any vulnerability uh, all 97 uh, should be of concern Um, but in particular there was one zero day vulnerability patched this month which is cve-2023-28252 which bleepycomputer.com reports is a windows common log file system driver elevation of privilege vulnerability and this vulnerability could let an attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability gain system privileges and this particular vulnerability lies in the windows clfs driver that elevates privileges to system which is the highest user privilege in Windows. And Microsoft says that the vulnerability was discovered by Genwei Yang with Mandiant and Keen Jin with DBAPP Security Web Bin Lab. Additionally, Kapersky said that they also reported this vulnerability to Microsoft. But as stated, there are other vulnerabilities that are particularly pressing there too, like several remote code execution vulnerabilities and bleepycomputer.com highlighted several of these, including CVE-2023-28285, 28295, 28287, and 28311, uh, which are not currently being actively exploited. Uh, but our vulnerabilities that lie in Office, Word, and Publisher. And given that they're Office components and Office is commonly used for phishing campaigns, uh, these are ones that you would not want to sleep on either. The latest Windows updates also brought with it some pretty exciting news in the form that LAPS is now being installed or made available in guest within the Windows operating systems. And I'll have a more extensive story on LAPS going into the OS 
later on in this episode, so stay tuned for that. It's also reported that the latest version of Windows 11 in the updates will show a notification within the start menu to back up files through OneDrive for some users. And some are upset with this, calling these ads, which is understandable because if you have an unwanted pop-up appearing within the start menu embedded there, that does kind of display or present itself in a way that looks like an advertisement. So uh, that is pretty understandable in my opinion. And another week, another scary security vulnerability, this time with the popular open source compression tool, WinRAR. BleepyComputer.com reports that hackers are adding malicious functionality to WinRAR self-extracting archives that contain harmless decoy files, allowing them to plant back doors without triggering the security agent on their target systems. CrowdStrike witnessed an example of this being used for exploits combined with a utility called utilman.exe. Utilman is an accessibility application that can be executed before user logon, often abused by hackers to bypass system authentication. The utility has been used to launch a password-protected SFX file, which is that archive file, uh, that had been planted on the system previously. The SFX file triggered by utilman.exe is password-protected and contains an empty text file that serves as a decoy. The real function of the SFX file is to abuse WinRAR's setup options to run PowerShell, our Windows command prompt, cmd.exe, and task manager with system privileges. While CrowdStrike claims that malicious SFX files are unlikely to be caught by traditional antivirus solutions, in bleepingcomputer.com's tests, Windows Defender reacted when they created an SFX archive customized to run PowerShell after extraction. So, I mean, it's good that the AV caught it in their testing, but still a very worrying vulnerability nonetheless. Popular storage vendor Western Digital disclosed a network breach and took their MyCloud service down as a precautionary measure. Based on evidence found so far, the company believes that the intruder had access to some of the company data. At the time of scripting this episode of the podcast, NAS customers trying to access the MyCloud service were being greeted with a 503 error. The MyCloud service status page noted that the issue is affecting the following products that includes MyCloud, MyCloud Home, MyCloud Home Duo, MyCloud OS 5, SanDisk IBI, and SanDisk IX Pand wireless charger. So if you use any of those services and you notice a disruption, this is why. Darkreading.com has reported that Google have proposed reducing the lifespan of TLS certificates to just 90 days. Currently, the maximum is 13 months, so this would be a pretty significant reduction. The proposal comes via the Chromium Project's Moving Forward Together roadmap. The change could be made by a future policy update or trying to get it passed as a cab form ballot proposal which would require buy-in from several stakeholders. Since Chromium is so widely used by different browsers, a policy change by Google would essentially dictate it as an industry-wide change. Google did not provide a specific timeline in its roadmap, but based on how the changes have unfolded in the past, the new validity period will likely take effect by the end of 2024, which gives organizations time to gain visibility and control over their keys and certificates. As Windows is moving to a once a year update model, Configuration Manager is planning to move to a new update cadence of its own 
that will align to that cadence. They will be moving forward with three to two updates a year. The next release of Microsoft Configuration Manager after 2303 will be in September of this year as version 2309. Effectively, the XX07 and XX11 updates are being merged into an XX09 update. The consolidation of updates will roll up enhancements into this release. Another outcome is reducing the number of deployments customers must manage annually. Hotfix rollups and security updates will continue to be made available as necessary to address any critical bugs. And I think this is going to be pretty well received by administrators because doing those updates of configuration manager can be a bit of a pain in the butt and some of them can take a pretty long time to complete. So I'm sure this is going to be well received. This week, Microsoft shared some improvements that are coming to Win32 app supersedence in Intune. They say that the Win32 app supersedence feature enables admins to upgrade or replace existing Win32 apps when newer versions of the same are entirely different Win32 app in a controlled manner. And since its launch, Microsoft have received a great deal of positive feedback about how supersedence helps admins streamline app updates but they've also received feedback on how it could be further improved. And they say with this in mind, major improvements have been made to certain areas, including creating supersedence and dependency relationships in the same app subgraph. A subgraph is a set of apps connected to each other through supersedence and dependency relationships, improving app tracking behavior during ESP, and also supporting supersedence relationships during ESP. And I suspect with the way that application management is going, that this will become a pretty significant area of interest for those managing applications with Intune is the idea of auto-updating and superseding uh, older versions of applications going forward. TechRadar.com recently had an interesting article about Samsung allowing some of their employees to use ChatGPT to help improve their code. But in doing so, the workers inputted confidential data, such as the source code itself for a new program, internal meeting notes, and data relating to their hardware. The upshot in just under a month, there were three recorded incidences of employees leaking sensitive information via ChatGPT. And since ChatGPT retains user input data to further train itself, these trade secrets from Samsung are now effectively in the hands of OpenAI. After instances such as asking ChatGPT to optimize test sequences for identifying faults in chips, which is confidential, and asking it to summarize those meeting notes that I mentioned, Samsung sent out a warning to its workers on the potential dangers of leaking confidential information in the wake of those incidences. Warning that such data is impossible to retrieve as it is now stored on the servers that belong to OpenAI. Another story of Google bringing an end to one of its products. Well, Google is ending support for the Dropcam and the Nest Secure home security system one year from last week, which would be on April 8th, 2024. The Verge reports existing Dropcam cameras will keep working until April 8th, 2024, after which you will not be able to access them from the Nest app. And to soften the blow, Google's offering a free indoor wired Nest Cam to Dropcam owners who subscribe to Nest Aware. Non-subscribers will get a 50% off coupon. 
The promotion runs until May 7th, 2024, so you can keep using your drop cam until it stops working if you like. And to coincide with Patch Tuesday, Apple have released emergency security updates to address two new zero-day vulnerabilities exploited in attacks to compromise iPhones, Macs, and iPads. First, CVE-2023-28206, which is an I.O. surface accelerator out of bounds write that could lead to corruption of data, a crash, or code execution. And they say successful exploitation allows attackers to use a maliciously crafted app to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges on targeted devices. And the second zero day is CVE-2023-28205. And this is a WebKit use after free weakness that allows data corruption or arbitrary code execution when reusing freed memory. BleepyComputer.com reports this flaw can be exploited by tricking the targets into loading malicious web pages under attacker's control, which could lead to code execution on compromised systems. The two zero-day vulnerabilities were addressed in iOS version 16.4.1, iPadOS 16.4.1, macOS Ventura 13.3.1, and Safari 16.4.1, with improved input validation and memory management added. Bleepacomputer.com reported that the Money Message Ransomware Gang have claimed to have infiltrated some of MSI systems and have stolen files that will be leaked online next week if the company refuses to pay a $4 million ransom. MSI have revealed that some of its information service systems have been affected by a cyber attack reported to the relevant authorities. But the company did not share any details on the timing of the attack about if any of the affected systems were encrypted or if the attackers exfiltrated business and customer information during the incident. However, MSI did say that the cyber attack has had no significant operational and financial impact with security enhancements implemented to ensure that data stored on affected systems is secure. According to chats seen by bleepycomputer.com between the ransomware gang and an MSI representative, the threat actors demanded a ransom payment of $4 million based on a claim that they've stolen roughly 1.5 terabytes worth of documents from MSI's network. So I guess it'll be interesting to see when that deadline passes, if the payment has not been made, what data will be put out there by this gang. Neowin.net had a pretty interesting article recently where they covered the fact the PC Security Channel uh, published their own research on basically network activity on different versions of the Windows operating systems up to the latest version, Windows 11. And they used Wireshark to analyze network activity on multiple clean Windows installations. The first was a brand new Windows 11 and another one was a good old Windows XP. A quick analysis showed Windows 11 connecting to many third-party servers and services, most of which do nothing but ad tracking. And it was worth noting in their research that all the activity happens on every Windows 11 machine out of the box without asking the customer and before they even try to use the internet. The article goes through 20 years of Windows operating systems, discussing how things have evolved and discuss the changes to the business model for Windows operating systems, which has led to this eventuality 
of noisier network traffic and maybe data sharing on the operating system. Betanews.com reported on an issue that affected Outlook users where they could not send or receive email due to a policy change made by Microsoft that means email attachments now eat into OneDrive storage limits. Microsoft started to roll out the change at the beginning of February, but it seems that the pace of the rollout has increased as more and more users are hitting their storage limits and experiencing problems sending and receiving their emails. Microsoft are now consolidating cloud storage across Microsoft 365 apps, and this means that Outlook.com users now have less space available to them than they had previously. While there was plenty of warning ahead of the change, some are unhappy with the changes, with some complaining that they feel Microsoft is forcing them to pay for additional storage by upgrading to a different OneDrive tier. So certainly Microsoft is not the only company uh, doing this. And I believe recently Google, uh, actually I'm not only saying I believe it because they reported on in the previous episode of the podcast, but Google set a limit on their OneDrive storage, which essentially might be driving significant changes in behavior and maybe even driving people off uh, the platform entirely. Good news for Windows 365 customers or potential Windows 365 customers. You now have the ability to provision cloud PCs for shift and part-time workers or others who only need a cloud PC for a limited amount of time during their workday. So this is something that I reported on on multiple different episodes of the podcast previously, but has now been officially announced. And they say with this feature, a single Windows 365 frontline license will support up to three cloud PCs. And these cloud PCs can be used by any employee as long as only one employee per license is active at any given time. So instead of purchasing Windows 365 frontline for every employee, you only need to purchase the number of licenses required to support the maximum number of concurrent active users. So for instance, if you have 300 customer service representatives working across time zones or shifts, but only 100 of them work at the same time, only 100 licenses need to be purchased to provision a personalized cloud PC for each employee. When these 100 employees save their data and sign out at the end of their shift, the next group of employees can log in to their personalized cloud PCs and pick up their work exactly where they left at the end of their previous shift. And after their shift ends, a third group can then sign in. Shift workers can get to work right away because their personal settings, data, and apps have been saved and are available as soon as they sign in to their Windows 365 Frontline Cloud PC. Unlike Windows 365 Enterprise Cloud PCs, Windows 365 Frontline Cloud PCs remain in a powered off state by default when they are not in use. And when an employee logs in through the Windows 365 app or windows365.microsoft.com, their cloud PC is powered on, and when they select disconnect, it is powered off. This process is completely automated and does not require admin intervention. If a cloud PC is powered off, it will receive Intune policies and updates when it gets powered back on. Windows 365 Frontline is said to be ideal for organizations of any size that employ shift workers, seasonal staff, are part-time employees who need access to a computing device only during their shift. I think the fact that these ones actually like power off when disconnected is pretty interesting. From a sustainability standpoint, I would think this should be something that should be introduced to the other uh, editions of the cloud PCs too. 
but this could certainly be of interest to a lot of different organizations out there. Uh, so yeah, check it out if you want more information. I'll share a link to the announcement uh, with this episode, which is episode 277, and you should find that at 5bytespodcast.com. A word of warning to Citrix customers. Citrix published a knowledge base article, CTX 492837, which warns that after upgrading to Workspace App version 2203CU2, customers may experience ICA launch delay issues. From Workspace App version 2203CU2, cryptnet.dll will be loaded for checking certificate revocation lists. And if Crypto API is not able to access any internet CRL server due to customer network security requirements, it will take more time for CRL checking. It leads to delayed launch of WFICA32.exe. The solution is to decrease default URL retrieval timeout and default path validation cumulative retrieval timeout by modifying the policy configuration. Uh, which you will find in the Group Policy Management Editor under Windows Settings, Security Settings, and then under Public Key Policies. The Times in the UK reported that one of Britain's largest outsourcers, Capita, were resorting to conducting much of their business through WhatsApp and Google Docs as they could not access their email recently. The access was removed for up to three days with speculation there may be a ransomware incident. Capita has a £94 million contract to manage phone lines and IT systems for England's primary care practitioners in the NHS, including GPs and chemists. But Capita, in their statements, stated, quote, Working in collaboration with our specialist technical partners, we have restored Capita colleague access to Microsoft Office 365, and we are making good progress restoring remaining client services in a secure and controlled manner, end quote. So obviously a pretty large fish given the clientele that they're servicing and uh, a three-day disruption is pretty significant. Control Up Real-Time DX version 8.8 has been released with official support for Azure Virtual Desktop that will bring customers 190 new metrics. There's also Windows Service Monitoring and State Detection, FSLogix Integration and Metrics, a new set of proactive triggering packs, multi-tenancy support, and much more. Again, for a full list of what is available in this version, check out 5bytespodcast.com for reference links for this episode. There have been some April updates to the MSIX packaging tool, and that includes simplification of MSIX image creation, MSIX MGR support for MSIX bundles, productivity improvements during MSIX image creation, accessibility enhancements in the MSIX packaging tool, and improved first launch experience for MSIX packaging tool. So maybe not as significant as the apparent compatibility improvements that were announced in the last month update, uh, but still improvements nonetheless, so that's good. Last week marked a cool anniversary. It was 50 years since the first mobile phone call. The BBC reported that on the 3rd of April, 1973, Marty Cooper stood on a corner of 6th Avenue in New York City and took a phone book from his pocket. He then punched a number into a large cream-colored device and put it to his ear while passers-by stared at him. Mr. Cooper, an engineer at Motorola, 
rang his counterpart at rival firm Bell Laboratories to triumphantly tell him he was calling from a personal handheld portable cell phone. He recalls there being silence on the other end of the line. Of course, back then there weren't many masks in the world, so it would be some time until the technology became mainstream. As the technology advanced, it was also incremental progress as calls would be limited to 30 minutes and the handheld receiver could weigh close to 21 pounds. Interestingly, Mr. Cooper believes the design of smartphones of today are suboptimal as users must place a flat object against the curvature of their heads. He believes it could be improved upon. Despite his complaints about its modern counterpart, it seems secretly Mr. Cooper remains enthralled by the device he first held to his ear on that New York Street corner 50 years ago. And at 94 years old, he remains optimistic for the future, stating, quote, We are still at the very beginning of the cell phone revolution, end quote. Google's finance chief, Ruth Porat, recently said in a company-wide email that the company is making cuts to employee services. Google said it's cutting back on fitness classes, staplers, tape, and the frequency of laptop replacements for employees. The latest cost-cutting measures come as Alphabet, who own Google, continue its most severe era of cost cuts in almost two decades as a public company. The company said in January that it was eliminating 12,000 jobs which is about 6% of its workforce, to reckon with slowing sales growth following record headcount growth. Employees will also be receiving a Chromebook by default. CNBC reports they saw a document that said food, fitness, massage, and transportation programs were designed for when Googlers were coming in to work for five days a week. Now that most of the employees are in three days a week, they have noticed that their supply-demand ratios are a bit out of sync, and they've, for example, baked too many muffins on a Monday, um, seen Google buses run with just one passenger, and offered yoga classes on a Friday afternoon when most folks are more likely to be working from home. So, I mean, some of it sounds sensible. I mean, if the employees aren't going to be there a lot of the time, then um, why have these extra perks or benefits that you're paying for if no one's really going to be using them. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. It might sound like it's like taking away something that's valuable, which I mean, it is valuable if people use them. But realistically, you know, I think people would probably prefer to just work from home and have that luxury than go in on a Friday for a yoga class. Ireland's law to enshrine a right to work remote has been passed by both houses of the Oireachtas. Deirdre Malone, who is a partner and head of employment law at EY Law Ireland, said she believes the law will be a game changer in terms of employees' rights, saying that it encompasses the right to request remote working or flexible working, as well as unpaid medical care leave, enhanced breastfeeding breaks, and the introduction of paid leave for domestic violence. It will be essential that the new code of practice will provide clarity in areas including employer requirements to undertake risk assessments in employees' homes and provide office furniture such as desk monitors and chairs, obligations around working time and rest breaks monitoring, and addressing data protection and cybersecurity concerns. The minimum service requirements where there must be six months service before remote working and flexible working arrangements can be requested strikes the right balance, according to Deirdre, between the rights of employees and the needs of a business 
and it's something that employers are likely to be pleased with as it's contained in the final legislation. There's also been many who have raised concerns about there not being enough qualifiers for this right and a concern about employee performance and additional costs to support remote work, amongst others. But regardless, it was passed, so now the bill will go before President Michael D. Higgins to be officially signed into law. So personally, obviously, I reside in Ireland, so I can comment on this one with my own experience. And I think it's actually pretty shrewd by our government because we have been experiencing a very severe housing crisis for a while now. So it might sound like, oh, well, if you have a housing crisis, how are people supposed to work from home? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But also, perhaps if more people work from home, then other real estate that's currently being used for businesses could potentially be transformed in the future into apartments and housing that could help improve the market as it is. But I guess that all remains to be seen. But hopefully someone is thinking that way and has a plan to leverage this for the betterment of not just employees and their rights, but also just Irish society in general by improving the housing supply. Thanks to Patrick van den Born for this next story, uh, who has shared Citrix article CTX 491278, warning that customers hosting VMs in Azure may experience an error when attempting to create a large machine catalog or additional machines in bulk, resulting in failure to create new machines. This error will appear in Azure as too many attempts to copy from a writable resource, a managed disk. Please use a snapshot source to create many copies in a short time. Citrix saved the solution for this at this point. They have observed up to 49 disks can be created concurrently, but for now, Azure suggests that customers use shared image gallery as a source for deployments at scale. On last week's episode of the podcast, I covered the fact that Intune management policies for managing LAPS was introduced. Well, Microsoft have also announced LAPS will now be natively integrated into Windows, and this includes Windows 10 and above and Windows Server 2019 and above. The feature is ready to go out of the box. You no longer will need to install an external MSI package, and any future fixes or feature updates will be delivered via the normal Windows patching processes. The LAPS support for Azure Active Directory is also in private preview, which I'd mentioned on a previous episode of the podcast. And they say that together with Azure AD, LAPS offers uh, many benefits, including being able to retrieve stored passwords via Microsoft Graph, uh, the ability to create two new Microsoft Graph permissions for retrieving only the password metadata or the sensitive clear text password itself, uh, provides Azure role-based access control policies for authoring authorization policies for password retrieval, helps you manage the feature via Intune and more. And there's also some new capabilities for on-premises Active Directory scenarios too. And this includes a greatly improved security uh, for sensitive secrets with password encryption. Uh, password history will give the ability to log back into restored backup images. Uh, directory services restore mode, password backups can help keep your domain controller secure by rotating critical recovery passwords on a regular basis. 
uh, and emulation mode, which will be useful if you want to continue using the older lap's policy settings and tools while preparing to migrate to the new features. Now there's a big asterisk on that one, and that's coming in just a moment. And also a feature for automatic rotation, which will automatically rotate the passwords after the account has been used. Now, I just said there is an asterisk, and that is because one of the early uh, Patch Tuesday fallout stories is that Microsoft is already investigating an interoperability bug uh, between the recently added Windows Local Administrator Password Solution, or LAPS feature, and legacy LAPS policies. And Microsoft have confirmed reports that applying the April 2023 updates will break both legacy LAPS and the newly launched Windows LAPS. They say symptoms include Windows LAPS event log IDs 10031 and 10032, as well as legacy LAPS event ID 6, and Microsoft is currently working on a fix for this issue. Until a fix is available to address the issue, Microsoft has shared a workaround to help admins restore LAPS functionality in on-premises Active Directory scenarios. And this requires either uninstalling legacy LAPS or deleting all registry values under the HKLM software, Microsoft, Windows, current version, LAPS, state registry key. So hooray, but also a little <laughs> rough start. Rollout of support for Gmail accounts for those using the preview of the new Outlook for Windows has begun. And soon, you'll also be able to add support for Yahoo and iCloud too, as well as the ability to connect your mailbox through IMAP. Microsoft have said it's their intention that every person should be able to access all of their emails in one spot on any Windows 10 or Windows 11 device. You could check whether you can add a third-party email to your account by going to Choose Add Account at the bottom of the folder pane, or click Accounts, Email Accounts, Settings, then enter your Gmail account and follow the prompts to authenticate. A lot of people are very excited about this and look forward to when this will become fully public. And great news, Citrix DAS can now deliver MSIX packaged applications to your endpoints using a couple of different methods. MSIX packages can be delivered from a network share and MSIX app-attached disks. And with the MSIX app-attached disks, MSIX packages are mounted onto a single or multi-session app-attached disk from Azure files or an on-premises network share. They say to configure MSIX, admins can just head over to the app packages node in the Citrix DAS console, and they will first need to point to the file share containing the packages or disks in order to discover and inventory the applications. Next, they can publish the applications to their delivery groups as normal, and their end users will be able to launch the applications at the next logon. So it sounds like it's pretty similar to the implementation for AppV, um, not necessarily the original AppV full infrastructure integration, but rather the one that came later, uh, where you're able to just essentially browse out to uh, the standalone AppV packages and manage and deploy those within delivery groups. Um, well, here, it looks like you'll be pointing to MSAX packages or MSAX app attached disks uh, living on a file share or up on Azure files. So pretty, pretty cool. Um, I'm excited to check it out. AWS recently announced new tools for building with generative AI on AWS. And some of the AI capabilities have existed within AWS for a while, but announced as general availability with this announcement. Uh, for instances, powered by AWS Inferentia version two, uh, 
which are optimized specifically for large-scale generative AI applications with models containing hundreds of billions of parameters. They say Inf2 instances deliver up to four times higher throughput and up to 10 times lower latency compared to the prior generation Inferentia-based instances. Also announced was Amazon Code Whisperer, which is now generally available, free for individual developers to provide code suggestions for Python, Java, JavaScript, TypeScript, and C Sharp, plus 10 new languages including Go, Kotlin, Rust, PHP, and SQL. Code Whisperer can be accessed from IDEs such as VS Code, IntelliJ IDEA, AWS Cloud9, and many more via the AWS Toolkit IDE extension. Aaron Parker had a really great article on Microsoft 365 Viewer Mode, which enables customers to deploy a single package without needing separate packages for Visio and Project, simplifying management. Aaron suggested FSLogic's app masking is no longer required to restrict access to apps in Microsoft 365 apps for enterprise on multi-session operating systems. You can now install the core apps in Visio and Project and just turn on Viewer Mode. This is similar to yesteryear when as Citrix administrators, some of us would have used the reader versions for some office support scenarios. Thomas Berger shared on Twitter that the public tech preview for custom domains in Citrix DAS is now here. It allows you to use a URL that you own to access Citrix workspace in addition to your cloud.com URL. This would be great for customization or access from China as suggested by Thomas. WindowsCentral.com has reported on some updates to the Microsoft Edge Canary build, and that is that it now has the ability to block autoplay videos. So the browser used to have similar functionality in the main release version of Edge, but it was later replaced with the, only the option to allow or limit videos that played automatically. The feature is rolling out to Edge Canary users over the coming weeks and can be enabled through the Edge settings page. The IDC had a pretty interesting report about the trends of um, hardware sales or PC shipments, stating that weak demand, excess inventory, and a worsening macroeconomic climate all contributed to the perceptuous to the drop in shipments of traditional PCs during the first quarter of 2023. Global shipments numbered 56.9 million, marking a contraction of 29% compared to the same quarter in 2022, according to the preliminary results from the International Data Corporation. Shipment volume in Q1 of 2023 was noticeably lower than the 59.2 million units shipped in Q1 of 2019 and 60.6 million in Q1 of 2018. Now, one could draw a conclusion that there was a surge related to COVID work from home strategies and needs of the times, and worth mentioning, the IDC also published some other updated industry analysis, including on the worldwide desktop as a service marketscape, showing Microsoft and AWS as the dominant leaders with Citrix, VMware, WorkSpot, NetApp, Google, Nutanix, and Aludu all as major players. And one final story for this week, uh, Microsoft is reported to be changing the default behavior of the print screen key. In an upcoming update, the print screen will be changed to launch the snipping tool instead, 
But if you're not a fan of this change, the good news is this option is remaining in the settings app. So all you'll have to do is go to the settings area and just toggle it back off, which will restore the classic functionality of the print screen button. This is in preview, so it can be expected in a future update for Windows 11. And the runtime of this episode is looking like it's going to be close to an hour this week, uh, which is unprecedented. I think the longest one I've done in the past is about 40 minutes. Uh, now, of course, I will have to edit this yet, so hopefully it's going to be shorter once it's out. I even have to withhold some stories for next week's episode just because it's too long. Um, but regardless, if you stuck through it, thank you so much. Uh, the whole idea of this podcast to begin with was to keep things short, but it just keeps growing and growing as I think more organizations and vendors move to uh, more aggressive kind of cloud-based type of release cadences and just so much more information is out there. But regardless, thanks so much. And uh, now just a few scripts, tricks, and tips to wrap up the episode for this week. First up, I actually recently posted a blog post on my own site, RoryMon.com, where I go over my current configuration for my home lab and what led me to setting up this type of configuration. Uh, So essentially, uh, it was necessity. Uh, I had limitations. I could not have um, loud machines, loud servers uh, running a home lab. I just don't have the space. Everything has to be within my home office here. Uh, which I'm lucky to even have that before I moved into this house. Uh, I was keeping my home lab beside the TV in our living room. So I've always been kind of noise conscious and had to play within the limitations of the space that I've had. So I just blog about that and kind of where I've landed and why I've set up things the way that I have. So you might find that interesting and I'll share a link with this episode, which is episode 277. And also uh, this week, I saw that Marc-Andre Manu shared how to decrypt RDP traffic live using Wireshark, which is really, really fascinating stuff. And hey, the second reference to Wireshark on this episode, which means it's probably a pretty good episode. An awesome handle on Twitter, Tuna Geezer warned, attention IT pros. When configuring conditional access policies with Azure AD identity protection, remember to enable sign-in frequency with every time under session controls. This crucial setting is not included in existing CA templates, so don't forget. Also, the awesome Remco, who I think has been featured either twice in a row or maybe twice in the last three weeks of episodes, uh, had a script that he shared that scans drivers on your systems and flags for known vulnerabilities. And Jacob Schaefer on Twitter uh, said, hey, heads up, if you're still using the user admin role for Azure AD identity governance tasks, on the 3rd of May, Microsoft will disable the permissions to manage these features from that role. So you better ensure that you use the identity governance role for daily management. Nutanix Frame had a really interesting article on optimizing Microsoft Edge, which could be a consideration for anyone deploying it in a VDI scenario in particular, but it could also apply to other environments as well. And finally, I saw my friends at Algus Technology had a new blog post that was published by Andrew Taylor on the topic of Intune versus Microsoft Configuration Manager, packaging and deployment comparison. So this is particularly timely as more and more organizations are moving most of their application management over to Intune. So if you're considering that, you may want to see what some of the differences are by reviewing this blog post. So again, 
This was an extremely long episode of the podcast. I apologize for that. I hope the content was worth it. And thank you so much. And I'll try to get back to the usual cadence and also the usual length of episode for next week's episode. Thank you so much.